How is everybody doing today? Thank you very much for the response. I appreciate it. I'm sure we can hear you guys across at the other watch parties. Just want to welcome you guys here today. Um, it's great to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Justin, and I'm one of the leaders here at City Gates. So just excited to be in a room with people that I haven't seen in some time. It's great to be able to see faces, uh, for the most part, that uh, aren't covered by masks, uh, if you choose to do so. Um, and so it's uh, it's been good. And so I hope you guys have been enjoying this uh, series as we go through uh, the Old Testament. Uh, we've had some awesome conversations in our in our uh, community group discussions. I'm going to put another plug in again. If you are not a part of a community group, you need to be a part of one. If you are feeling like you are disconnected from the church because you're not a part of a watch party or because all of these restrictions that we have going on, um, that's what our community groups are for. You can stay connected that way. And I promise you that uh, if you join or if you're not a part of one and you become a part of one, you will be blessed. Okay. You are truly missing out if you are not a part of a group. And I just want to really and strongly encourage you guys to be a part of one. Uh, there's uh, many options that you can look for depending on what your availability is and the type of group. You can go to the, through the uh, Church Center app and check a website and all of that information will be there. Um, so good to be here. Uh, it's been a long time since I've had a chance to preach. Um, so uh, I'm going to shake off a bit of the rust. I made sure to wear a pants that don't have a zipper uh, today. Um, I've been wearing sweats for the last two years working from home and I had to go into the office last week and had to wear, wear jeans and twice, two days I went in, I had twice, two reminders, Justin, your fly is dead. So <laughs> I make sure that if I was going to be on camera today and this is going to hit YouTube and be available to the world that I was not going to let that uh, happen. So, so today we're going to uh, jump into the, um, the book or books of first and second Samuel. Uh, it was very tempting for me actually taking on two books that this was going to be inaccurate. Then I should have put a two up there saying this is two books, one week, one story. Uh, in, the, in our modern day Bible, we do see it as two books. Uh, but really, uh, and theologically, when we look through um, the way that the book is, the books are written, actually, the only reason why it's separated in two is because the scrolls weren't long enough uh, for the people who are writing it. So I couldn't use that today. So it's one book. We're going to stay with the theme as we go through it. Uh, I just want to do a quick recap uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, before we actually dive in and get into into Samuel. Um, you know, at this point, the children of Israel have entered the promised land. Uh, and like every or most other books that we've read up until this point, uh, the Israelites are have supposed to have been faithful and obedient to God. So we see through the book of Judges that they miserably fail at doing this. And this is a constant pattern that we see through it. Uh, we see Joshua uh, as, as sort of the last great leader, uh, and Mike shared with us a couple of weeks ago that so we see this inconsistency of leadership after the time of Joshua. And we're going to see this consistent pattern as we continue to go through the Old Testament over the next little bit and as we get into the book of Samuel. Um, we see people, uh, and I'm going to go just the, the very quick points from what Mike shared, which was we see the people at the beginning of the book of Judges inquiring of the Lord at the very end, they completely turn aside and do a 180 and do what they feel is right in their own eyes. And one thing that Mike spared us from was all of the chaos that actually happens within between those lines in the, in the book of Judges. But if you have some study time, I encourage you to go look. It is There are some crazy things that go on through the book of Judges. Um, and so we just see this chaos. And that's what happens when there's a lack of leadership. But, uh, you know, last week in the midst of this chaos... 
uh, we get this break from the tyranny and we see this beautiful book of Ruth that's planted sort of in between the book of Judges and as we get into Samuel today. And Lucy, who spoke last week, did a fantastic job of showing us this great picture of redemption and this through line. That's a word that you have uh, will have heard from a couple of weeks ago, I think, starting with Ryan. And I think we're going to see that sort of uh, that tagline sort of used all the way through. And so uh, we see this through line and we see this amazing picture of the genealogy of Jesus at the end uh, where the most unlikely people are selected. And God uses his people as we see uh, the lineage of, of, of God come through uh, to the time of Jesus. So this puts us to the books or book of Samuel. Uh, just to give some uh, historics, uh, the story takes place about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. That's a long time from yeah. this time, right? And so where we're going to be, but we see these amazing, up to this point, these amazing uh, imagery and sh- types and shadows of what is to come. And it's a thousand years before, and we haven't even gotten to the books of the prophet yet, right? And we're going to see so much more. Wait till we get to the book of Isaiah. So I'm going to do the best I can to summarize this book uh, in the short period of time that I have. Um, You know, last week, uh, Lucy had four chapters and she was about 35 minutes. I've got 55 chapters to go through. (laughs) So if we uh, sit tight, we'll be done by dinner. All right. So. So we see this this gap of leadership, you know, from the time of Joshua. And and we were having this discussion in our home group uh, last week or the week before and we just like wondering why did this kind of gap come? Did Joshua not do a good job in you know transitioning his kids or, or other leaders to sort of take over uh, and realize we just kind of see this gap and we don't see sort of why it happens, but we're leading up to this point where we go through the book of Judges and, and now into Samuel and uh, the people are looking for something new. And so we're going to introduce three sort of key characters uh, through the books of Samuel, two that we're really going to focus on. Um, although the book is named after Samuel, he's actually not the main character of the story, but we certainly want to give his give him his due. And so uh, we're going to start off in sort of the, the beginning in, in chapter one through three by actually looking at us, uh, Samuel's mom, whose name is Hannah. Uh, this is a woman that we know very little about. Uh, she's married to a man named Elkanah. And, uh, you know, before we actually get into the meat of the the um, the, the story today. You know, sometimes you read through the scripture and you find these little things that you can't get past. And like, man, I, I got to sort of find or figure this out. And so I'm going to take us on a little bunny trail uh, for now. Um, but I think it's interesting. It's, I'm going to give you some marriage counseling here, especially for those who are uh, young marrieds or aspiring to, to, to be married. And this is really for the guy. So if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to go to uh, chapter one, first Samuel chapter one. And we're going to go to verse eight. I'll give you guys a second to get there. And I couldn't get past this, and so we're going to read it, and then you'll see where I'm going with this. So verse 8 says this, and you've got to understand. So Hannah is this woman. She, is, she, loves, she loves the Lord. She is grieving because she is barren, and she wants to have a child. And so she's pleading. She pleads with the Lord, and her husband sees her, and he says to her this in verse, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? The arrogance of this guy. You know, uh, for those of you who are not um, part of this watch party, but we had 
uh, in our time of confession, really talking about how we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And this dude needs to humble himself. This guy's dumb. That's all I'm going to say. This guy has not learned his lesson. I, he has another wife, too. So it's not like this guy lacks experience. I mean, he's got uh, another wife. He's got kids. But this guy just doesn't learn. And for those of you who are aspiring to be husbands or you are a young husband or if you've been in the game for a long time, because uh, I'm certainly not perfect. My wife will tell you that. who's sitting over here. If you think for one moment that if your wife wants something, that you can fill that gap 10 times over, you missed the, you missed the mark. And listen, if your wife wants flipping ice cream, give her ice cream, okay? There is nothing that you can do that's going to satisfy that need that she has. So after this, we don't hear much of Hannah until chapter two. And that's uh, um, chapter two. By this point, Hannah uh, has prayed. She gets pregnant. She's uh, given a son. God answers her prayer. And she gives a birth to, to Samuel. And then in chapter two, and I, I, we don't have time to go through it, but it starts off with this prayer from Hannah. And I'm telling you, when you have a chance, you need to go back and read this prayer because she brings down, she brings down the house with this prayer. And I just want to point out a couple of things from it that, again, we're not going to go through now, but you're going to see it through the, the course of, of the message today. We see a couple of key things through Hannah's prayer. One is that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Toby and I didn't script that earlier when he shared about Pharaoh and how he humbled himself and went to Moses. Uh, this is just a fitting piece. And we're going to see this whole uh, concept of pride and what it does to us. And, and, and humbling ourselves and what it does to us through the two main characters that we're going to see in this story, which is Saul and David. So moving to chapter three, and I'm not going to go chapter by chapter, I promise. When I said dinner, I didn't really mean it. Samuel is now uh, a bit older. He's still a young man. He's called by God. His name actually means heard of God. So here comes Sam, uh, Samuel, and he is this prophet that mediates now between God and the, and the children of Israel. And uh, it probably should, it would have been good for me to use the Bible project in this situation to kind of go through the story, but it's like 20 minutes because there's two books. And so by the time I could have done, so I couldn't cheat like Mike did with with judges. So I'm going to try and weave my way through. I'm going to try and weave my way through and fit in a couple of takeaways that we can get through as we go through the story of specifically in first Samuel, as we see Saul's life and sort of his rise and fall. And as we get into the end, as David's now ascension happens, as he's being called by God, and we see a similar pattern of him as we get into Samuel chapter 2. So going to uh, 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 chapter 8, at this point, Samuel is now growing old. Again, we don't know the timeline in between chapters 3 and chapter chapter 8, but Samuel grows old. Again, Samuel is acting as like the leader at this point. He's the key guy, right? Uh, There's no king at this point. We're going to get to that in a moment. So the, the people of, or the children of Israel are inquiring of Samuel for them to hear from God. And so because of this inconsistent pat- pattern of leadership, Samuel should have had his sons raised in order to sort of take over uh, this leadership. But it says that they did not follow in the ways of the Lord. Very similar to sort of what we see with Joshua. And so if you guys have your Bibles with you, please turn to uh, chapter 8, verse 6. I want to re- read this along with you guys. The people of Israel come to Samuel and they say, look, we want a king. We want an earthly king. So they don't want to obey their heavenly father. 
right? We've seen this whole level of disobedience all throughout the course of uh, the children of Israel coming to the promised land. And so rather than submit and obey to the king who is their God, they ask for a man. They are asking for trouble. So chapter 8, verse 6 says this. It says, but the thing that displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God gave them what they wanted. And when I look through this, and one of the patterns that we've talked about and seen is this idea of idols all the way from Genesis, Genesis all the way through now. God shows up to the people. He is king over them. But we see this constant pattern of them moving away from God and creating these idols. And for me, as I was looking at this, asking for an earthly king was really just asking for another idol. Because if they weren't going to obey their heavenly father, there's no way they were going to obey an earthly king. So God tells Samuel, right, moving on, he says, Look, give them what they want, but I want you to warn them and tell them what will happen if they follow this king and this king is not obedient and they're not obedient to, to be faithful to God. So again, we're not going to sort of go in into that, but basically Samuel gives them this warning and they still say, yep, yeah, we want the king. We'll take him in spite of what is, could happen and ultimately what's going to happen. So enter Saul, right? So chapter nine, verse one, and we're going to go. And I want to do is I want to create this, create a sort of um, a picture of what you see with Saul and how, when he's anointing this king. And then what happens when David enters the picture and the, and the difference between the two. Now, please understand that God is the one who, who picks Saul. Okay. But we're going to see some uh, difference, key differences between them from an exterior perspective. So, Chapter 9, verse 1 says this, as it describes Saul. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, and a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. I don't know if they did some type of a survey through the course of Israel, but somehow this guy got selected and he's, he's determined that he's the guy. So here he is. What I find interesting is that this description at the end, which really threw me off, it says, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I just thought that to be an interesting. Yeah. So I was actually forced to kind of go and look into that. But I'm thinking, what does that look like? It certainly ain't me. I'm not tall. <laughs> from the shoulders up, I'm not, you know. Uh, what's funny is that uh, while I was in the office last week, for the last like year, we've been doing Zoom, Zoom calls and, and whatnot and on camera. And so uh, we've had like 50% turnover in our company over the last year. And so we've only been seeing people on camera. So we go to the office and dude walks up to me, a guy that I you know talk to often uh, uh, on calls. And he says, hmm, I pictured you to be a lot taller in person. <laughs> so I said... What do you mean? You and funny. You only see me from the shoulders up, which is the funny thing. And he says, "Yeah, I just picked you. Look so much taller on camera, which doesn't really make any sense." And he, and he said, "You play basketball, so I just had this assumption that you're going to be a lot taller." So, complete stereotype. So, so here's the description of Paul from the outside, the perfect fit. And you are going to see if you think about this some parallels to when Jesus arrives on the scene in the New Testament. 
and people start declaring him or saying that he, this is the coming Messiah. Right? They pictured a political king that would be dressed in robes, tall, dark, and handsome, all of those things. And Jesus was not that picture. Here we have Saul fits the mold. So Saul now is anointed as king. So the people get what they want. Fits the bill. And to be honest, if you read through it, and again, there's a lot of, you know, 27 chapters or 28 chapters, or maybe it's 31, actually, and I lost track. In 1 Samuel, we see Saul actually from the time that it was calling him, when he, when he is anointed as king, he actually has a very, very good start. We see him have many victories, many great victories, actually. And then when we get to chapter 13, we see Saul's first misstep. And so this is where this whole idea of character and being humble that we were talking about early and we saw in Hannah's prayer, the difference between what pride does to us and what happens when we're humble. And we're going to see those differences. So Paul, or Saul has been given these specific instructions on what uh, he should do after, uh, after, this, after this battle. He's waiting for Samuel to come. And so he waits seven days as he's instructed to, but Samuel does not show up where he, where he thinks he's going to be. And so Saul, uh, Saul says, that's fine. Let's go and do this unlawful sacrifice. He kind of takes matters into his own hands. He becomes impatient. And then, of course, as soon as he does that, we see Samuel come to the picture and say, what have you done? Okay. So one of the, one of the key scriptures that we see in the, in the book of Samuel, this idea that obedience is better than sacrifice. And we're going to see that in a moment when we get into chapter 15. So we get... So, so David, or sorry, Saul does this thing. And in the midst of this first sort of misstep, we already see Samuel bring David sort of into the picture. He tells Saul through this, what you have done is foolish. And God is already setting aside someone who is after mine own heart to take your place. That is a hard thing to take. Believe me, there are many points in time where I don't feel sorry for Saul. But there are times where I look through and I say, man, this guy, he had a heart. Like almost like he was set up for failure. And it's just like, but he had a choice to make. He did, like we all do, right? We all have a choice in a, 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 to make. And in this case, Saul made the wrong choice. And the thing is that we just don't see this repentance from Saul at all. He always seems to be making excuses. And so now we jump down to chapter 15, where we just see this complete downturn of, of Saul. He is given this command to go and take the Amalekites and the instruction that he's given from God through Samuel is that he is to go and basically kill, take everything and leave absolutely nothing behind. So to part, Saul does it. But the instruction that he was given was to kill the king, King Agog. And what he does is he takes him prisoner. So it's funny because we see Saul have sort of this, what we might may think is compassion by not killing him. Because they've taken everything else and feel like he's got nothing left. But Samuel comes back on the scene again from the instruction of the Lord and says, look, I gave you very specific instructions and you didn't do what I told you to do. And in the same chapter, we see God come and say to Saul, he said, you need to go and tell Saul, this is the deal. I actually regret making you king. A very similar a passage to what we see in Genesis 6 with Noah, mm-hmm. right? And one thing I can assure you of is God does not make mistakes. God did not make a stake in choosing Saul as king. He was given instruction, look, if you follow and do what you say you're, you're supposed to do, your kingdom will go on. But if it doesn't, this is what's going to happen. 
And of course, we know that God always has the best plan A in place, never a plan B. This is all part of God's plan. So in chapter 15, verse 24, and again, Saul has been completely disobedient. He makes excuses and says, yeah, look, I've done what you've told me to do. And then Samuel reminds him again, no, no, these were the specific instructions. And then after that, after Samuel calls him out, in verse 24, we see Saul say this to Samuel. Oh, I've sinned. I have, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And listen to what he says here. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Once again, I can't help but go back to Mike's message at the end of Judges when they decided to do what was best in the sight of man uh, and do what was, they thought was right in their own hearts. And so Saul completely turns away from wanting to please God and he wants to do what's pleasing to the people. This is their king that is supposed to be leading them through. Now, if we are honest, guys, we are probably not much different in many, many ways. And so there's, a, there's many ways that we can connect with the characters that we see here. But Saul has this completely huge issue with the disobedience. You know, he, he acknowledges his sin here, but he really doesn't truly repent because we don't see Saul turn from his ways in this. And of course, at this point, Samuel has now come and said, look, God has chosen another king and we're going to get him ready. So although God strips Saul of his reign and his future kingdom going forward, he still remains king. While God, through Samuel, starts working on getting David prepared. And so God chooses this new king. And we're going to see this very different picture of what David looks like from the time he comes on the scene. So when the people ask for a king and Saul is there. So he, God commands Samuel, go to, go to Bethlehem. Sound familiar? Right? We see these connected dot, uh, things that are starting to happen now. Right? Because we know through the lineage of the, the city of David or through Bethlehem, that's where Jesus was ultimately born. So we start connecting the dots. He goes to see Jesse. He's got eight boys. So he knows that's going to be one of them, but there's one that's left out because he is the least of these. It says that he was like the shortest, really, when you do the translation. I can relate more to that guy than I can to Saul, that's for sure. <laughs> but he goes and he goes one by one. And up, as, he's, as he's going over them, God, no, that's not the one. That's not the one. There has to be another one. And so he goes to Jesse, the father, and says, is there anyone else? And he says, yeah, there's a shepherd boy who plays the harp. Go and see him. And so he goes and sees David and says, yeah, that's the one. And what we know about David is he's, the Bible says he's ruddy. He's small. He is very handsome is what they say. Okay. But he is completely the opposite physical picture of what we see with Saul. And so in chapter 16, when David comes on the scene, we see uh, this in verse 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance for on the height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord not or sees not a man what see what man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but I look at the heart. And see that we see this contrast now about what God is really looking for. Right? It's not our outward appearance. He's looking to see what's in our heart. And so David is anointed as king. He's not king yet. And so we sort of see this parallel uh, between Saul and David. Right? And I, like we talked about already, this picture of what Jesus coming on the scene looks like in the New Testament. He doesn't come as the people expected him. 
And so I, I just, this is one of those points where I kind of feel sorry for Saul. We see that God's uh, presence is removed from Saul. He's no longer with him. And call, Saul continues to inquire of the Lord, but he gets no answer. And so he is completely tormented. Right at this point, David has already kind of fought Goliath as part of Saul's army. And Saul make, takes recognition of David. Probably has no clue at this point that, oh, this is the guy that's actually going to dethrone me. So it's just this crazy picture of David coming into the picture, God sort of weaving in this together. And David, through being tormented, says, look, I can't sleep. I need some, I need some harp. I need some harp music. <laughs> so he inquires through one of his servants. The servant says, oh, I know this guy. You might know him too. It's David. David who plays the harp. So David is the one who goes into Saul's chambers and plays the harp. And it's the only time that we see Saul sort of find peace through it. But it completely goes downhill from there. So as David now is weaved into the picture, he is you know, put into a high position by Saul. He becomes one of the heads of uh, Saul's army. And he has, when we thought that um, Saul had some victories early on, uh, David had um, tremendous victories, right? I think it says, you know, Saul had, uh, you know, victories over thousands and David over 10,000. And so we see David getting a rise to power and the people start recognizing his, him as this figure. And Saul becomes extremely jealous. And we see how Saul's heart is continuing to be exposed and the lack of character that he has. A good leader would have been happy for his son, right? We see Saul reference David as a son all the way through, even to the time um, where David has opportunities to kill him. And so as the story goes on, Saul is so jealous. He says, look, we got to kill this guy. And so Saul puts together an army and pursues David on two different occasions. David is now, now has to flee to save his life. His best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And David is now in the wilderness. And through the wilderness, through these times of fleeing, we actually see a number of the Psalms. When we get to the book of Psalms, we're going to see this great connection of how David uh, was, you know, writing about, first of all, his sin, his time of repentance, and his time away of being with the Lord and seeing how God watched over him while he was in his worst, right? Wanting to be killed. The difference between David and Saul is this, and we talked about what God is looking for. As Saul is pursuing David, David has two chances, as we see in the latter part of the book of Samuel, where he can go and kill Saul, but he chooses not to. He chooses not to because Saul is still king, and we see David say, look, this is our king, and he chooses to honor and stay loyal to Saul, when he didn't have to get every opportunity, probably had every right to go and kill the guy that was trying to kill him first. And then we just see this tremendous heart of humility and, uh, and David being humble and honoring this man who wants to kill him. So, like, let me ask you this. How many people have ever worked for a terrible boss? Okay, thanks. I see those hands. That's <laughs> went up pretty fast. Okay. How many people wanted to kill that boss? <laughs> Don't answer that question. Just... <laughs> I was, I was I, there was a time. Let's take this a couple steps further. How many people don't like our leadership in our country? How many people have spent time praying for your terrible boss or for our leaders in Canada? It's a hard pill to swallow right now, I would imagine. <laughs> 
Now remember, how we respond to adversity really reveals our heart and our character. And, you know, what we've seen and we can use from Saul's example, and we've talked about this already, is that our obedience to the word of God, okay, is much better than any sacrifice that we could possibly ever make. We have a very key responsibility. And guys, I need you to hear me, okay? I am not judging you. I am because I'm in this boat with you together, okay? There are things that I don't like. And do I pray for my boss? Probably not enough. Have I prayed for the bosses that I really disliked? Sometimes never, probably. Do I pray for our leadership in Canada? Sometimes. But I think we can get a lesson when we look at this and how this really applies to us. Right? We can be like Saul or we can be like David. Right? I want to be like David. I don't know about you guys. Right? I know that I can screw up a lot and we're going to enter into, uh, you know, Samuel, um, Second Samuel in a moment. We're going to focus a bit more on David. But we know here that we talk about be- obedience is better than sacrifice. And we have a responsibility to obedience to the word of God. To do what God has told us to do and not what's right or what we feel is right in our own sight. It's not wrong to have views and opinions on what's going on around us. But we need to represent God in a way that honors him more than anything. That is our, our main responsibility. So what we see about Saul in contrast is that Saul was this man who was great in stature, but he was just weak in character. He has a very good start to his call to kingship, but a very, very terrible finish. And so near the end of chapter, uh, First Samuel 1, uh, we see the, this demise of, uh, of Saul, and eventually he loses his last war, and he falls on his own sword, right? Rather than get killed by the by the army that defeated them, he, he falls on his own sword and dies, and Jonathan dies, and we see the end of Saul's reign. So enter into Second Samuel, where we start to focus on David. And again, we see the heart of David here, right? We see him, you know, taking the two chances that he had to kill David, and he chooses not to. And then even after Saul dies, we see uh, uh, Second Samuel start by David lamenting and weeping over the loss of his best friend and this man who tried to kill him. So we see his heart. So chapter two, David takes over as king and uh, he has much success as we go, as he goes to war, right? He continues remaining humble in his heart. The Ark of the Covenant is now back and, and David has overtaken the city of Jerusalem and that's become the city of Zion as, as it's referenced to. And now that takes us to this key passage. We're going to jump to 2 Samuel chapter seven and I'm going to give you a chance to go there because this is really not just the key portion in the books of Samuel, but this is actually a key point of scripture throughout the entire Bible. Okay. And we're going to start to see how uh, this weaving of stories comes together in the, in the big story of God. So in chapter seven, it says this. Now, when the king lived in the house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies. So David had these, these battles, finally has a bit of rest. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now that I dwell in the house of Cedar, but the ark of God still dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant, David, thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I not lived in a house since 
the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. And all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, that I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I command to shepherd the people, my people. Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took from my pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over the people of Israel. And start seeing this in verse nine. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off your, all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great, I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. We'll see some connections here. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time I, that I appointed judges over my people of Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I looked, as I took it from Saul, from whom I put away from before you. And your house, David, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So the beginning of this, we see David says, man, you know, God, you've been, been without a house. I want to build you a house. And God completely flips the script and says, no, actually, no, David, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take I'm, I'm going to make a house out of you. I am going to establish the kingdom of God forever through you. What an amazing picture. And so where does this take us back to? This sounds maybe very, very familiar. God is making this covenant with David about how he's going to establish the kingdom of God forever. And we will see the line of Jesus through him. We go all the way back to Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. We've seen that woven through every book that we have already got to up into this point. I just want to remind you what it says in uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, you don't have to turn there. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So again, we see this through line all the way from Genesis. Now to this covenant that God has now made with David. And so... It's just this beautiful picture and we see the connection and connecting the dots all the way from the beginning to where we are now. What we will continue to see as we continue on through the Old Testament and into the new and Jesus arrives on the scene. The unfortunate part is that after God creates this covenant with David, we now start to see a similar pattern of what we've seen with Saul. I don't know if this got to David's head, but right. He knows what's in front of him. Um, but we see this continuous downfall and we see just the blip in David's character. Probably more than a blip, actually. For those of you that are not familiar uh, with the story, as it goes on, David is uh, on his rooftop. He looks down and he sees uh, this 
woman bathing, which assumes she's naked. It says that she's also beautiful. And David inquires and says, who is that? And his servant says, oh, that's, uh, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. So we see this here. He asks who it is. His servant says, that is Bathsheba. He's married to, she's married to Uriah. So David knows. Okay. And this is sort of the disturbing part of what we see in David's character flaws. He goes to great lengths, actually, to get to be with Bathsheba. He says, oh, that's his wife? Good. Go get her for me. She goes to David. David sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. Wasn't planned. I'm going to show you of that. So as David finds out that she is pregnant, he says, okay, what are we going to do about this? He says, go and get Uriah, her husband. We're going to have some dinner together. So David and Uriah get together. He gets drunk. And David says to him, you need to go and lay with your wife. Now there's wars going on, right? And Uriah is one of the gatekeepers. So Uriah tells David, he says, you know what? No, I can't go and lay with my wife. I need to go and guard the city. So that ruins David's plan. And again, we, he is going through great lengths to see this happen. And that's actually very disturbing to me because I love David. He's actually my favorite, favorite character in the Bible. And although we don't measure sin, it's like you look at this and it's like, man, what was really going on in his heart at this point? Right? But I think we could all identify, even if we are people who long after God and we have a heart after him, we are so susceptible to making really, really bad decisions. But it doesn't mean that we can't be redeemed from that. So David takes it a step further. He tells the go and put Uriah on the front lines of the war so that he can be killed. That's very clear what the Bible says. He doesn't say put him there to see what happens. Maybe he doesn't come back. He says no. So David, he gets murdered. David's a murderer. So he's an adulterer. He's a murderer. And we just see this start uh, beginning of the fall of David. So now Nathan is the prophet that is speaking in between here. And Nathan goes, and he actually, it's a really great story if you, can, if, you, if you read on. He goes to David and he gives this story and an analogy of this person who did this really, really bad thing. And David says, oh, whoever that person is, they need to be put to death. And Nathan looks at him and says, actually, it's you. So he gets confronted by Nathan. But the difference with what we saw with Saul and his lack of accountability and his lack of repentance is immediately we see David fall on his knees and he repents of his sin. And we see him turn from that. Now, we, one thing we need to understand is our sin does not always, even if we repent, doesn't mean it's not without consequence. And so we see this unfortunate trail of what happens behind the scenes, or not behind the scenes, but behind David. So we see that his, his uh, baby with uh, Bathsheba dies. And God tells him through Nathan that, look, the war is never going to depart from you. And the worst part is, is that we see David's sin sort of carried on through his kids. And we see some pretty sick stories as we get near the end of Samuel. Right? One of David's sons falls in love with a sister. He goes and rapes her. The other brother knows what happens, goes and kills his brother. And it's like, where does it stop? Oh, and then Absalom. Right. Absalom, his other son, goes and takes over David's throne, gets an army, and wants to, wants to uh, kill David. So we see David flee again. And David is out on his own. And so throughout the rest of Samuel, we see David, although God redeemed him because of his heart of repentance, um, we just see that he finishes his race at the end of his reign, but he is a completely broken man. 
So David is this picture of Jesus, this chosen king. The difference here is that, you know, David was a good king. But Jesus ultimately is our great king. And I just want to leave us as we are taking, I'm taking quite a bit of time to leave us with a couple of thoughts as we've gone through this book. And just thinking about, you know, the whole idea of how God views us and how important our character and integrity is as we carry on as Christians and we model this around people who are far from Jesus. One thing that we do see is this, is that we see the faithfulness and the promises of God. You know, last week, Lucy did a fantastic job of explaining the genealogies and tying in through the bloodline of Jesus, the most unlikely people. And I just could not get past the story of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. Okay. Like I know that I come from a dysfunctional family, but when I see how God uses certain people through the Bible, it's just amazing on what he does. But why does God choose people like that? Why does he choose people like us who are completely or mostly unqualified? I'm speaking of myself. I'll say that, right? Don't fit the the whole stature thing, right? Um, God does it because when he does things his way in a way that we least expected, ultimately it gives glory to him. But on the flip side, when God uses people like Rahab and David, it's because it gives us hope. Because we are as imperfect as we see these characters that we have been reading through all the way through. I mean, look what God did with Naomi and Ruth. Like, what a story that is. You know, and I just, guys, we're not much different than the people we see here, just in different contexts, right? And the only way that we're going to be able to live out the purpose that God has called us to is when we submit our lives to him. When we become obedient to the word of God and we do what he has commanded us to do and we do that instead of doing what we think is right in our own eyes. We need to be humble. Right, We need to stay humble. And guys, this is a constant thing of sanctification. Right, We are going to continue to mess up along the way. We just have this inability to be perfect. But if we strive to be like Jesus and have a heart after God like David did, we can do great and mighty things just as these people did. The last thing I want to leave you is, is this part, it's, which I think is key. And we see this through these characters. It's not how we start. It's how we finish. Saul had a great start or a good start, not a very good finish. David had a really great start, not a great finish. But the picture of Jesus, the the true king, and what we see as we get into the New Testament and what we're going to celebrate in a moment when when we do communion is that Jesus is the perfect king. He doesn't mess up in any way. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He doesn't make the mistakes that we make. And so because of that, we can lean on him. When we put our trust and our faith in Jesus, we know that uh, we have hope when we submit our lives to him. And the problem is, is that if we're being really honest, is that we make these images. We, you know, rather than be uh, being image bearers of God, we make images in the way that we see right in our own eyes. And that's a dangerous place to be. You know, how we respond to adversity often reveals our character. And I don't know about you guys, but, you know, this has been, you know, there, uh, we've heard us mention there's been a, a, a few of us who are taking a, this devotional uh, thing for a, a ride, which will likely eventually get rolled out to everybody. And, you know, from January until now, I've probably been the most consistent in my devotional time and in my, in my prayer time. 
And the one thing that I have noticed, and again, whether this is visible on the outside, that's one thing. The one thing I, I can say about myself is that my appetites have started to change. When I have normally, you know, would seek after things that, you know, um, the world has to offer that I think I'm short of or that I'm lacking, I just very easily go back to recognizing how content I can be because of what God has done for me, what Jesus has accomplished for me on the cross. And I think we can learn that from this story. We're going to do communion in just a moment. And if you are at your watch parties, I believe you have emblems that have already been provided for you. If you're watching at your watch party, I would encourage you to take a moment and, you know, get some emblems and we could do communion together. I'm just going to ask us to close our eyes for a moment. I'm going to share one last um, nugget of truth that I think uh, we can we can lean on it and take away from today. And then we're going to get into our time of communion. Here's what it is. Our problem isn't being overwhelmed by sin. Our problem is that we are not, we have not been overwhelmed by the true and living God. I'll say it again. Our problem isn't being overwhelmed by sin. Our problem is that we have not been overwhelmed by the true and living God. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to live the same way that I lived yesterday. I know that God has a plan and a purpose for my life, and he has a plan and a purpose for your lives. He has a plan and a purpose for City Gates Church. And we have a mission that we need to accomplish, but we cannot do that if we try to do things our way. We need to be submissive to the, the spirit of God and allow him to direct us. And I just want to pray over this quickly before we end, and then we'll, we'll have our time of communion, and we'll, we'll move on. Father, we just love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus, the true and perfect king. We thank you that what Jesus came to do, Saul could not do, David could not do, not even, no one could do it. But God, you came to earth, you clothed yourself in flesh so that we could relate to you. And God, ultimately, your blood was shed for us when you went to the cross. You took our sin and you paid a penalty that we should have paid. God, we humble ourselves before you today. Would you help us to take away our pride so that we would not try to do what we feel is right in our own eyes? And would we inquire of you, Lord, and would you direct our path? Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that in spite of our wretchedness, you remain faithful. And we love you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Am I going to lead this or are you guys coming up? All right. If we could get some help maybe in handing out um, the emblems.
नहीं है Father, we just thank you for what this represents. We thank you for this uh, bread or this cracker that represents the body that was beaten and broken for us. Father, we thank you, God, that you did it without question. You took our sin upon you, but your body was beaten and scorned. And as we take partake of this uh, emblem right now, God, we just thank you for that. And we remember what you did for us. And Father, this cup represents your, your blood. We thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary. God, you did it because you loved us. Because this was a part of your perfect plan. We thank you that this was the joy that was set before you, God, which was us. And we just thank you that your blood was shed. And we just do this in remembrance of what you did on the cross for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for uh, bearing with me uh, through 45 minutes or however long it was. Hope you guys got at least something out of it. And uh, we just uh, look forward to next week. Toby will be preaching as we continue on through the uh, first and second Kings. Have a great time. Be a part of a home group this week, and we hope to see you guys soon. Bless you.